Christians. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from Acts chapter 2. You can find this on page 910 of your pew Bible. And in Acts 2, we have Peter. Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, and then we read the following, beginning in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And our catechism lesson, as I mentioned before, comes to us from Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, and it's printed there for you in your bulletin. Now we'll read it now for us. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of God what is the true church. For all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. We are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not a part of it, even though they are physically there. But we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. 
It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. Today, many people are doubting, some are even assaulting, the credibility of the church, whatever we mean by church these days, the church at large, the church as a concept. And perhaps in many cases, this is actually a, a warranted uh, thing to do, to disregard it. Many churches, so-called, have done plenty of things to lose credibility. We do not have to stress test our imaginations to come up with ways that churches have been less than faithful in our days and days before. People can point to scandals or practices or beliefs in certain churches and say, well, well, that's bad, and they can be very right. I'm sure that many things are coming to our minds right now. But on the other hand, while we do very well in our day and age to critique churches, we struggle to unify around what is good and what is necessary. I recall from my childhood, it was something of a generalization, an adage that, you know, churches could split over anything. They could split over the color of the carpet. They could split over a change in children's ministry. There is a, a certain suspicion, or there was when I was a child, in the Southern Baptist Church that if there was a church plant, that meant there was a church split. And so we struggle in our day and age to unify. What should we unify around? What is it that draws the church and constitutes the church and makes a church a church? This was the question that our confession addressed there in Article 29. In our day and age, it's often uh, the case that people want to unify around something like charity or, or good works. I once had a, an atheist agnostic coworker when I was bartending somewhere on that spectrum of not caring and not believing tell me that her vision of a good church was one that just did good things. It helped the poor. It helped those in need. Didn't matter. All that other stuff was, was unnecessary. For many, that's how they view the church. The church is good as long as it does good. It takes care of people. And there's a sense in which the church should do this. We've been memorizing Heidelberg Catechism question 86 in our household with Cecilia. And one of the reasons we do good works is because our neighbors are watching. But that's the last reason. It's the least reason. We are known by our love and we should seek to do good works. But that is not what unifies us as a church. A well-ordered church will do these things. There is mercy ministry. We have deacons. We'll see that next week as we talk about confessional officers in our church. But to stop there, to stop at mercy ministry or good works as some want to do, we may recall, what would Jesus do, WWJD? We unify around doing what he would do. That leaves little to no room for the way that places like Acts 2 or the Great Commission or Paul's letters elsewhere describe the church and what it does. 
It's not an adequate place to find unity around what we do, the good we do in this world. This being a dominant way we think in our culture, I think it, it seeps into us more than we realize. We think that a, a church should do good things, and that's really what matters. We focus on the ends. But I want us to take seriously today our confession's emphasis on the marks and the means. It's not about what the church produces. It's about what the church does. It's about what Christ told the church to do. I've been thinking a lot about the marks lately as we turn to plant a church in Birmingham. I'm doing a series through each mark there uh, monthly. And I've been thinking about how they work in our tradition. And this is a, an intentional focus. These are the things that we should do well. These are the things that we need to do well to be a true church. This is the means of how the church operates. They're not minor. They're not expendable. They're biblical. A lot of people treat these as though you can get rid of them or shortchange them or focus on something else. Well, what are the marks? What is the theory here behind the marks? Well, the first thing I would like to draw our attention to is that the rationale behind the marks is summarized for us in Belgic Confession 29 in this way, that paragraph beginning, in short, <coughs> in short, the true church governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. That summary very clearly brings to our attention a Reformation-era teaching, a teaching that we can really trace back to Martin Luther um, and those before him who taught it in some fashion, but it had been lost, and it was recovered again. The teaching that popes, traditions, bishops have no authority against or over God's Word. If you placed against one another all the tradition in the world, all the figures in the world, and a clear statement from God's Word, we must follow the very Word of God. This was, of course, the spark, the norm that led to the Reformation, to churches being different in that late medieval period. And when Luther took this stand, he did so at the risk of his own life, because he thought that it was an eternal matter. He would rather lose his life here on this earth and be faithful. Our confession highlights three areas that this, this belief that Christ rules and reigns and his word rules and reigns in our church in three particular areas. We see preaching, gospel preaching, the administration of the sacraments, and discipline. These are areas where scripture is clear, but the clarity had been lost. The church had departed radically from this in many places in that time. There's one thing we can say about our, our tradition, our confessional heritage, it's that it took the gospel seriously. It reformed the proclamation of the gospel, its primary place in worship. I believe it's Mike Horton who's fond of saying, before we get the gospel out, we better be sure we get it right. Does it matter if we get the gospel out if we don't have the message correct? And so the Reformation was this time where they were having to distinguish. They were having to say, 
Preaching matters. Preaching the gospel matters. We often remind ourselves of the five solas of the Reformation, right? Three of them are in our new logo, which you can see behind me. It says, by grace, through faith, Christ alone. Alone, alone. It is faith alone in Christ alone that alone justifies the ungodly. We've been talking about how it's the word of God alone that is the only authority. And of course, this is all for the glory of God alone. One of the things we tend to not take seriously is that this faith comes by preaching, by proclamation of the gospel, by hearing a message outside ourselves. I don't know about you, but I, until I was up here doing this kind of thing, never really thought much about a theology of preaching. What is preaching? What is it doing? Why do we have it? We tend to gravitate towards this or that preacher, or we like this or that style. Maybe if you walk into a church and the sermon sounds like a TED Talk, you'll stay, and maybe you won't stay. Maybe that's the reason you'll leave. But we tend to choose based on things like that, like style. But that's not what preaching is. If we have a theology of preaching, we'll react a little bit differently to that. Preaching is the proclamation of the Word of God, His law and His gospel, but especially the proclamation of the gospel. Because as I've already alluded to, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing the gospel preached, proclaimed. This gospel of free grace by faith alone, it comes to us by God's heralds. Preaching was a reformed, uh, reformed distinctive. It was something that the Reformation brought back to the fore. Right? This proclamation of the gospel is what we do Sunday after Sunday. That's what preaching is, declaring God's word of law and gospel. And so when we think about those solas, to go back, those five solas, they express themselves in the worship service, and especially in preaching. How else are we to access these things by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, except by hearing, hearing the word proclaimed? And this had been lost. The clarity of the gospel had been lost. There was treasure in the scriptures and in some of the church fathers, but it had been hidden and obscured by time and by theologians, by legalism. It certainly wasn't being heralded clearly. To go back to Luther, we can think of his crisis of faith, of never being good enough, never doing enough. We can also think about how preaching became subordinate. As we turn in a moment to think about the administration of the sacraments, there were seven sacraments, and preaching was really subordinate to all of them. If you know the seven sacraments, preaching isn't one of them. Preaching became an addendum. What really mattered was that you went through these sacraments. Some of them. You can't go through all of them. And I don't know about you. Some of you probably have more than I sat through homilies in Catholic churches. I've sat through a few. They're far from inspiring. Sometimes they're even far from engaging. They're very short. And there's no clarity. Preaching had been lost. It had been shuffled to the side instead of placed at the fore where we hear 
of Christ, where our faith is strengthened, grown, where we hear the gospel ring out clearly. And so now we turn to the sacraments, right? And again, it was Luther early on in 1520 who wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church. And if you have some time this afternoon or sometime soon, I encourage you to read it. It's not too long. But I always picture Luther in this time frame with smoke and sparks flying from his pen. He's writing quickly. He's writing a lot. Uh, He wrote three treatises this year, and he wrote them in haste. One of the things that I think gives this impression is one of my favorite things about the Babylonian captivity is that in his introduction, he says, I'm going to prove that there are really only three sacraments. There's the Lord's Supper, there's baptism, and there's penance. And by the time he writes his conclusion, he says, and thus I have proved there is only two sacraments. He didn't even have time to go back and edit. He was writing and sending things out. The sacraments were a clear moment where we could test this principle, that the word of God rules in the church. There were sacraments, five of them, that are nowhere clearly prescribed. Once scripture alone was the reigning principle, the authority for those other five sacraments were dubious. Their place was was separated, segmented. If we think about these sacraments, holy orders and confirmation are nowhere mentioned in the Bible. They're definitely not commanded by Scripture. And while extreme unction resembles James 5.14, where elders are to anoint the sick, it's not clear that this is a sacrament. And in fact, it says not that the elders anointing saves, but it is that the prayer of faith that saves. That's what delivers the sick, the prayer of faith. And while marriage is instituted by God, it's done so at creation. It's nowhere called a sacrament. It's called a mystery. God gives it to us for our good, but it's far from pointing us to Christ. And confession is important, and for us, a public reality that we do together. Penance, indulgences, works to save ourselves, are not biblical. And so Luther and those who follow him, like the Reformed, who took seriously the authority of the Word of God in the church, had two sacraments. We can't add to what Christ has commanded. We don't have that kind of authority. He didn't command marriage for everyone. He didn't command holy orders for everyone. He didn't command confirmation at all. So these two sacraments that were left, this is where Christ communicates himself to us. They're not some abstract concept of grace. They're pictures of his work. They're signs and seals. They mark us out. They put God's mark upon us. They proclaim and strengthen and seal to us and make personal the gospel the free grace of the gospel. And so here it is, one of the marks. Do they do this? Do they do this the way the Bible says? Because if they don't, maybe they're not taking Scripture seriously. Maybe they misunderstand authority. And last, we come to everyone's favorite, discipline. And again, if we think about Reformation history, anything we know about, we know that biblical church discipline was not 
practiced. Discipline was not practiced correctly according to Scripture. It's easy to see how authority, their misunderstanding of authority, led to their misuse of discipline. Listen to the confession again. The false church persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. It persecutes those who believe Scripture, who take it seriously. And in that time, you did not have to look far to find evidence for that. The popes, even, were involved in gross immorality, much less the bishops and local priests. You can read about the Medici family, their political machinations, their ascendancy to the papacy. They were not disciplined or removed. And yet we have Luther, the upstart monk. We have Calvin on the run from France. We have Guy Debris, Guido Debris, martyred for teaching this faith in France. Discipline was being used, exercised, to silence those proclaiming the truths of Scripture. It was far from being practiced faithfully. Rome used its authority and its power to protect itself. And it was not a biblical authority. It was not an authority that served Christ. And our view of discipline is different from that. If you have time later, after you're done reading the Babylonian captivity of the church, you'll have time to look at Lord's Day 31 from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on the keys to the kingdom. It's just a few questions. It's a good exercise to read through the catechism and and think through these things alongside one another. And there's a positive and a negative aspect to preaching and to discipline. So the keys to the kingdom are preaching and discipline, two of the things we're talking about here today. And preaching is easy for us to understand that positive and negative aspect, the opening with the keys and the closing. The gospel opens wide the kingdom of heaven to those who believe and have faith, and the law warns and shuts it off to the unrepentant, to those who trust in their own works, who do not trust in Christ. But discipline does the same thing. It warns and closes the kingdom specifically to certain people when discipline is exercised, but it also opens the kingdom by readmittance, as the Heidelberg Catechism talks about. Not only do we discipline, but we bring people back in. But it also means that if you are a member in good standing, it's saying that you're not worthy of discipline, that you are a part of this community, that you belong to the church. Your profession is credible. This is for you. The upside to discipline is that the kingdom of heaven is opened Through the church, you belong here. You belong to Christ. When we're members of churches that believe and preach the gospel, that administer the sacraments and discipline faithfully, it's an assurance that discipline offers you. Those around you, your elders, as we'll talk about in just a moment, let you come forward to communion. And say, yes, you're clinging to Christ's promises. Yes, he is for you. Discipline provides assurance. Discipline provides care. 
At the time of the Reformation, it would be weird for someone to think that they mattered enough for their priest, for, them, for the priest to care what they did, or their bishop, or the pope. They were doing the church up front, and you just kind of watched and attended, and maybe you partook. Maybe you've been uh, traveling and you've wandered into Roman Catholic Church. I did this a lot when I was in Prague. There are all these beautiful churches. And you'll find these priests standing off to the side. And they're over there saying the Mass by themselves. They're doing it on behalf of other people. But everything they need for the church is happening right there. Without any participation from those in the city. The priest alone is enough. He can do church without you. But in a Reformed church, your elders know you. They care for you. They know what you do. They pray for you. Monthly, we gather together and we, we pray for you. We pray for you daily in our own personal prayers, as we are called to do. It's part of our job description. Elders care for you. Because membership implies a place in this house alongside other people, alongside Christ's own body, as he calls it, and under that light and easy yoke and burden that he says, come, take my yoke, take my burden, it's easy and light. We submit to Christ's authority. In a church, you are a community of brothers and sisters who are called to love and serve one another and to submit to Christ in his word. And elders and pastors and deacons come along to assist you in that. To help bring you in line with God's word. To care for your soul. To care about your eternal well-being. One last note about discipline is that we often think of discipline in a very negative turn. We think about it as something bad. We don't want church discipline. But the language we often use is discipleship, right? We're disciples. That is a part of discipline as well, following Christ, submitting to him. And we do not do this alone. The language we find in the Gospels of discipleship is the language of the schoolhouse. We think about the Gospels where Jesus is teacher, and we have disciples. You could translate this word pupils. They were learning. They were growing. This is a favorite metaphor of John Calvin as well, the schoolhouse. The schoolhouse was one of the great reforms in Geneva, education in general. But that came into the service as well, where Calvin taught and preached the gospel day in and day out. Because members are disciples. We're being formed, we're being called, we're submitting to our master, our great teacher, Christ. And we do that in the church as members of the church. Discipline is a part of this. Membership is a part of this. Because the mission of a church, as I've been thinking about going and planting a church, is the marks to do these things well. And we live in an age where the church is easily distracted. The church does a lot of things. Many churches focus on a program, a youth program, a kids program, or events 
or experiences or personalities. But imagine going to an auto mechanic and asking for medical advice. If your mechanic's really good, you might trust him. If he's really good and you know him, you might go, yeah, I'm going to go get this checked out. You're right. But if your mechanic's really bad and you take your car to him and it takes him a month and it comes back and it's not quite working right and you ask him what he did in all that time and he tells you about all this other stuff, how he, he hosted an event and how he did this, that, or the other, but not about how he fixed your car, you wouldn't really want to go back to that mechanic. You wouldn't trust his advice. He can't even do what he's supposed to do. He, he's not good at his own trade. He's shot his credibility. And many churches have done this as they focus on things other than the marks. They don't focus on the clear things that Jesus told his church to do. The mission isn't a good program. It's not a great conference or a good retreat. The mission is preaching. It's sacraments. It's membership. Being faithful in these ordinary small ways is the mission of the church. It's not a great experience in worship. It's the marks. If a church cannot do these, and many, I think we would say, do not do them or do not do them well, then they aren't a true church. That's the the implication of our confession here. They're not submitting to the yoke of Christ. And we see all of this when we look at the earliest church, when we look at our New Testament lesson today from Acts. We see the apostles teaching, they're preaching. We see the breaking of bread and fellowship of communion. We even see enrolling. They're adding to their number. They can count them. There's about 3,000 souls. And day by day, more are being added, more are being enrolled, more are being cared for. We see there that ministry of mercy. They're selling and buying, and they're distributing to the poor. How do they know who's poor? Because they know who's a member. Later in Acts, when they set aside the deacons, it's because the apostles are spending their time caring for these members. And they need to devote more of their time to teaching. The marks are there in the earliest church. It's there in the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, and here is what you're supposed to do. Go, make disciples, teach them, baptize them. Word, sacrament, discipline, all there. All under the authority and command of Christ. Disciples are those members those who are being taught, those who are being baptized and given communion, those who are disciples, those who are students. And so we need churches committed to these marks. They're not optional extras. They're not something that we just take for granted. They are the core of where we find Christ. And there are things like mercy ministry that flow out from them. There are things like officers that flow out from these marks. And community flows out from these marks. But we should be committed to what Christ has given us to do. The mission of the church 
is to do this and to do this well. Not to focus on anything, but Christ and him crucified in the way that he has commanded us. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty and most merciful God, we are thankful that you have called us into your people and given to us a family, brothers and sisters. We are thankful that you have poured out your spirit on your church, that you have given your church gifts, you have given us pastors, elders, and deacons for the edification of your people. We thank you for these gifts, for the gift of your spirit, and we thank you most of all for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us his own righteousness. We are thankful that the kingdom of heaven is opened when we hear him proclaimed Christ alone for us by faith alone, and that when we believe with that simple faith, the kingdom of heaven is opened to us, that Christ's perfect righteousness is ours by faith alone. And we are thankful that this glorious grace comes to us through the ministry of your church, the church that you are pleased to call your own body. And so we ask you that you would create, grow, strengthen our faith in Christ alone, our simple faith, our faith alone in Christ alone. We ask that you would grow a gratitude in us for what Christ has done for us so that we can cherish your church, the true church, because we cherish our Savior, and that is where we find him. And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior and by the Spirit. Amen.